0: Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, understanding contemporary politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. I'm William Hudson, host of this podcast and professor of political science here at PC. The views you hear on this podcast are either mine or those of my guest. For today's episode, I thought we would cross the pond to learn more about Brexit, the United Kingdom's historic withdrawal from the European Union, which became official a few weeks ago on January 29th. This withdrawal came after nearly four years of political turmoil in Britain following the June 2016 referendum in which a slight majority of British citizens voted to leave the European Union. The prolonged process of negotiating the break with Europe brought down two British prime ministers and required two general elections. While a majority of British citizens voted to leave the EU, finding majority support for the terms of the withdrawal proved challenging. Only December's massive electoral victory of the Conservative Party, led by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, created the political conditions that allowed the British to, in the words of Johnson's campaign slogan, get Brexit done. And while the United Kingdom European Union break is now official, Brexit is still not completely done, as we're gonna learn in today's podcast. It's not done because the British and Europeans still need to negotiate a trade agreement during this coming year to establish the details of their relationship. To help us understand this turning point in British history, I invited Dr. Osama Siddiqui, assistant professor in the Department of History and Classics, to tell us about what's being going on with Brexit. Professor Siddiqui joined the Providence College faculty just this year after completing his PhD at Cornell University. After earning his undergraduate degree at the University of Western Ontario in Canada, Dr. Siddiqui spent two years in Britain at the University of Cambridge on a Commonwealth Fellowship. His professional expertise in the history of the British Empire provided a fascinating perspective from which to understand Brexit. Uh, From our conversation, I thought that inviting historian to talk about this important contemporary event was a very, very intelligent thing to do, because Professor Siddiqui provides us with a profound and very insightful view of Brexit and places it in the wider context of British history. So I think our listeners are going to find this a very fascinating conversation with some great insights from a very a good historian who understands British politics. Professor Osama Siddiqui, welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So we're going to delve into the details of Brexit, this complex historical moment in Britain's yeah. history. I thought to begin, maybe we should get some background about Britain's ascension into the European Union. Of course, they joined in 1973 That's when it was right. the European Union economic community. Right. So, what's been the nature of the relationship between uh, the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe over these several decades that they've right. been joined in this European
1: project? Yeah, I think that's a really great place to to start our conversation. So, I would say as a kind of starting comment, I would say Britain has always had kind of contentious relationship in terms of its national identity in terms of defining what its national identity is so at various points in history uh, British people have felt or have considered the question of are we a European nation are we an Atlantic nation Uh, are we uh, an imperial nation and I think those things have always been um, In contention with one another. At various points, you see one of those identities becoming stronger than others. At other points, you see um, maybe all of them working together. Uh, And at other points, I think um, you see kind of a lot of debate between the three of them. So as you said, Britain joins um, the European Union in 1973, or the European Economic Community in 1973. And what's really interesting about that moment is right after there's a referendum. So they join under a conservative government. And 1974, Labour comes into power. And they offer a referendum on Europe on that relationship. So Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, offers the electorate a chance to weigh in on that joining of the European Economic Community. And that referendum is held in '75, and overwhelmingly people vote to stay in the European Economic Community. Yeah, but prior to the referendum, Labour was not all that enthusiastic about joining. That's the Europe, right. Correct. That's right. So that's a kind of in, that's a really interesting. It's almost a reverse parallel with the moment today where in 1973 when they joined, um, it was labor that had the split in the party between people who were really opposed to that and people who were really in favor of it. So more of the left um, was sort of opposed to joining the, the community and people on the sort of center were were in favor of joining and it wasn't there wasn't that sort of split um, on in the conservative party and in 2016 2015 2016 we of course saw the opposite where there was a split in the conservative party and i think very much Harold Wilson very much saw that as a chan- a referendum as a chance to sort of resolve those tensions within his cabinet and within his party um, and which i think in some ways um, David Cameron very much also saw that as an opportunity so you see both the Labour and the Conservative Party sort of struggling with this question in the 70s and then today. Yeah,
0: that's an interesting parallel with the referendum in 2016, and I want to want to get back to that. But before we do that, uh, just from this history, uh, why was the Labour left reluctant about Europe? What, yeah. were their, what were their concerns way back in the
1: early 1970s? Right, yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think for a lot of people on the Labour left, this was Europe was seen as this essentially capitalist project the idea of a common market um, was itself seen as a kind of a slur that you could have um, a situation where um, European integration would lead to sort of uh, expansion of in a sense uh, liberal capitalism across Britain it would cl- more closely bring sort of market Uh, market relations into British life. Um, And so they were very opposed to that for for that reason. Um, You also saw, I think, um, among the left, the sense that this would sort of drain away British sovereignty, that you would end up with a situation where more and more control over kind of democratic decisions in Britain would be be taken away and you would end up with greater control from this sort of undemocratic uh, supranational body. And I think that was some of the concerns that you saw on the left Uh, in the 70s. So would would they have been concerned about, perhaps uh, because of the relationship with Europe,
0: social benefits in Britain being cut back, or the ability to
1: regulate business would be Taken away from the national government. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think they were concerned that European Union would bring its in its own regulation, and that would change how Britain thought of uh, the welfare state. Uh, it would change how uh, business was regulated. Perhaps it would lead to kind of greater deregulation. And so, those were certainly all concerns that um, the left had in the seventies when uh, when Britain was considering uh, joining the community.
0: But when this referendum happened, there was strong support for joining Europe That's and right. both the conservative and labor parties uh, were in favor of that. That's so.
1: right. So it leads to this overwhelming majority in support of staying in the community. So 66, 67 percent, I believe, um, voted, to, voted to stay in the community. And really it was, I think, a chance for um, Harold Wilson to sort of resolve these tensions within his cabinet and for the kind, of, in a sense, the centre held, right, in, in the early, se- when that referendum happened, both the centrists in Labour as well as the Conservative Party who were in favour of saying um, that, that position uh, won out. And so over the next couple of decades, Europe strengthened, went from being in a European
0: economic community to a European Union. Right. But over that period of time,
1: Disenchantment with Europe grew in the Conservative Party. How did that happen? That's right. Yeah, that's a really interesting history. So, over the course of the eighties and then the nineties, you see kind of greater concern on the Conservative side about the expansion of the EU. So, the EU is sort of growing um, as in the in the eighties and the nineties, uh, it's becoming more of the integration project is sort of becoming uh, stronger. So, um, as you said, um, European Union is formed in in the early nineties. From the economic community to a political union, um, in the late '90s, it leads to the talks of a currency, a common currency, which comes about in um, in late '90s, early two thousands, and so it's really, I think, that that sense of losing sovereignty, that we're losing political control, starts to grow among conservatives in Britain. And so the UKIP party, the UK Independence Party, is formed in 1993 with Nigel Farage, who's become a kind of leading um, anti-Europe voice um, in Britain. And you see that position growing very much um, in Britain, in starting in the late 80s with Margaret Thatcher, who spoke out against kind of further European integration, even though she had been for um, for staying into the community in the 70s. and. That position, I think, became really dominant in, um, in among uh, the right and uh, the conservative uh, factions of the party. And tellingly, Britain didn't join the common currency. That's right? right, they kept the
0: pound, That's and there was right. some nationalism behind that. right? That's
1: right. Yeah, that was a very contentious debate in Britain in the late '90s about whether should we join or should we not join. And I think you're right. There was absolutely a sense of. Um nationalism, that people didn't want to lose the pound,, uh, you know, the queen uh, on all the currency. but they also felt, I think that this would just bring us ever closer, right that we would um, once you join the currency, then you're sort of drawn in uh, further your economies are tied um, a lot more. And what's interesting is, I think, after the 2008 crisis, the financial crisis of 2008 and the kind of Eurozone crisis uh, in the years after that, I think many people on the British right have felt sort of vindicated by that decision that we chose not to join. And so um, I think that decision, they they believe, was the right thing to do. Right.
0: It was certainly very valuable in 2008 in the financial crisis for Britain to have its own currency. That's right. And they could have more control over how to respond uh, as opposed to uh, Greece or that's Italy, right. which right. were tied to the euro, that's right. and and they virtually were were subject to the decisions by, well, largely the the German dominated European Union. Right. That, that's exactly right. You know, I was reading
1: something by an uh, uh, an Italian politician who said something like, "Our entire politics has now come down to." The the spread between German bonds and Italian bonds, right? That Italy, in a sense, there's a kind of financialization of politics where um, Germany can sort of dictate what happens and what we do uh, because our currencies are so linked together, and because there's this, in a sense, there has been this kind of financial union. I think for for people in Britain, um, not having adopted the euro, there's been the sense that we've sort of escaped um, uh, escaped that. Mm
0: Well, I think, you know, this This historical background is, is important for understanding Brexit because from the perspective of the United States, where we read about what's going on in other countries and perhaps are not too knowledgeable about the context, you, th- you wonder, why did this thing suddenly happen? But it, from what you've just said, it sounds to me like uh, the relationship between uh, the British and the rest of Europe has been fraught all along, though they belonged to the community, they there was some nervousness there uh, and some uh, significant segments of the, at least the political class who were always uh, a little bit hesitant about how close they wanted to get to be.
1: That's right, yeah, I think there is a, I think there's sort of two ways to read this history, right? Like you can think of this as a kind of short-term um, crisis that came out after 2008, 2009, the kind of rise of UKIP um, and the kind of political crisis after um after that in sort of conservative parties attempt to offer this referendum as a way to uh hold on to the uh hold on to their kind of eurosceptic base but i think as you suggested there's this longer history as well that i think um for a long time the question of how european are we right are we a european nation how european are we um has long been part of British politics and you see that sort of ebb and flow um, throughout um, the late 20th century and I think it sort of coalesced um, all of those kind of various strands coalesced um, in in the years after kind of 2009 and 10. Well let's focus in on those years now.
0: Sure. Uh, we've got the broad view, let's start focusing in on the events that led eventually to the 2016 referendum. What actually were the, some of the
1: details about how that came about? Right so Basically, the Conservatives come into power in, in 2010 in this kind of uh, coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. And from that time on, they feel as if they're starting to lose some of their base to the UKIP, so the UK Independence Party.
0: And this is the party formed in 1993. Uh, Lafarge is the head of it. That's right, Farage. And, and, they're, and they're, they've been challenging the Conservatives from the right all along. That's right. So, yeah. in, so in elections, they would run a... UKIP candidate against the Conservative. And,
1: and did UKIP right. win any seats in that process? They didn't. So they never really became a sort of major electoral party. So they, because of kind of Britain's uh, first-past-the-post system, they they were never able to win any seats, but they would start racking up kind of percentages, right? So they would win 3%, 4 5%, growing, a growing share. That would then cut into the conservative margins in seats where they were very close to labor, perhaps, right? So
0: essentially, UKIP could result in labor taking a constituency. That's right. That's right. Absolutely, uh, ordinarily would be a conservative constituency would actually elect a labor.
1: That's right, uh, member. That's that's exactly right. The other way in which, apart from kind of national politics, you did see UKIP winning um, on at the local level. So kind of council elections um, or um, municipal elections, you saw them kind of gain a small number of seats. Nothing sort of major, but you did see them winning. Um, at that local level again from conservatives and so um, I think there was this deep sense on the conservative side that uh, if we don't um, if we don't handle this the European problem in a sense we're eventually going to um, we're going to lose a substantial portion of our base. The other thing of course is within the party itself within the parliamentary party there's an increasing split between what are called the so-called euroskeptics um, and um, the Europhiles, people who believe in the European project and people who are opposed to the European project. And so within the party itself, among the MPs, um, that tension, I think, um, started to become more more prominent um, after that 2010.
0: And so uh, that,
1: that that's
0: the situation.
1: Now, how, how did that result in this referendum? Yeah. What were the steps there? That's right. So 2015, the 2015 election, David Cameron, who's running for re-election, um, offers as part of his platform, as his campaign manifesto he says we're going to offer a referendum on um, on staying in Europe um, and we're going to renegotiate our relationship and we're going we're going to then offer this referendum so that that looks
0: sounds to me like a blatant attempt to win those UK UKIP voters back to the conservatives that's right absolutely by making this promise and saying that's look right. look you elect us and i hear what you say
1: We'll have a referendum. We'll settle it that way. That's right. I think that was absolutely what his play was. In fact, you know, I think commentators have argued that it really was an attempt to resolve a debate internal to the party through a national referendum, in a sense. Um, And so um, he offers this referendum. um, And I think Cameron himself was very much um, somebody who favored staying in Europe. He was a he was a Europhile. And he saw this as an opportunity to. Uh, much like Wilson in in seventy four, that he, this would be an opportunity for us to resolve uh, this debate once and for all, and then he could say, "Well, look, I've offered this referendum. These are the results, and I don't think he he anticipated that uh, it would actually that they would vote to leave."
0: After all, it turned out well for Wilson. That's right. right. That's so right. So Wilson, in fact, silenced his dissident, dissident leftists on Europe for a while. That's exactly and right. And he was hoping to do the same with the. Euro
1: skeptics in that's the Conservative right. Party. Yeah, that's okay. right. And so I don't think he planned for it. He didn't. He didn't certainly didn't anticipate that it would be the case. And of course, so the referendum happens in 2016, and the results were sort of kind of shocking to everybody, including Cameron, who then resigned. Right,
0: and, and Cameron wasn't the only one who thought that. In fact, the British public would vote to remain in Europe. In fact, weren't polls showing that, by and large, before the referendum that. It looked like there was a solid majority in favor of staying.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Polls were kind of in favor of the Remain side, um, th- because there were so many kind of senior figures on the Remain side, both uh, from the Conservative Party, but also the Labour Party. Um, you know, celebrities. Um, it really was seen as a kind of yeah, it'll it'll be totally fine. We'll we'll just um, this. There's no way that people will vote to leave. Um, and so the moment that happens, I, I still remember that sort of watching those results and that sort of sense of shock and the markets crashing and really was a kind of really remarkable uh, remarkable evening, I think.
0: Why did it turn out the way it did? How can we explain right. this yeah. s- surprising yeah. outcome when all evidence suggested that the British people would want to
1: stay in Europe. Yeah I think you know I think that's a question the historians will be debating for for years and years and I don't know if we have a totally a uh, great explanation just yet for for what happened. I think there's probably a few factors so one was I think there was perhaps complacency on the Remain side um, about um, well we know this is going to happen so we know this will be it will not be a problem we'll we'll vote to stay in and so perhaps the Remain side got a little too complacent and didn't really think about um, the fact that this was really a kind of passionate issue on the right and for a lot of people um, not even just the right in fact there were people um, on the left there was kind of left leavers um, who were in favor of it as well and I think so that sense of not really kind of preparing uh, for it or making a really passionate case for staying in, um, I think that may have been part of it. Um, I think there's also the kind of longer term history of the Sort of economic dispossession and economic dislocation of areas, particularly in the north, um, areas that used to be kind of industrial towns, um, booming industrial economies that started to kind of deindustrialize and people lost their jobs, um, and kind of entire communities really sort of decimated by. Um, economic transformations in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And in some ways, those changes have sort of continued. That's
0: very similar to what happened in the American Midwest. Right. Again, with the deindustrialization in places like uh, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and across the whole Midwest.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting parallel. And I think for many people trying to explain those results, I think the American case in in some ways, I think, there are there are many parallels between those two situations. And so um, I think for people voting in, in the referendum, there was a sense of this is a kind of uh, revenge against the elites, right? That this is the kind of lo- the London establishment. the, the uh, And I think the EU in some ways became a stand-in for all sorts of grievances that people had against the political establishment, against the economic system, um, against um, a sort of um, uh, you know, people, if you look at interviews from folks who voted um, to leave, they would often say, you know, the people look down upon me, people, this kind of elites in London, um, look down upon my way of life or something. And so it really became a kind of referendum on a s- certain kind of a perceived elite in some ways. S-
0: similar to, to, to some Trump voters in the United States, right, that often articulate a resentment about the, the elites who look down upon them. Right. And of course, President Trump plays on that. He, he knows right. that those are those are ways to appeal to
1: his supporters. That's right. And I think you saw that within, I think that's a great parallel. You saw that within Leave voters as well. So Nigel Farage um, has been very successful at sort of playing to that so- sort of um, resentment and sort of playing up ideas of British identity, um, that we are this sort of um, you know, intrepid nation. Uh, we have a kind of certain way of life, and these elites are kind of looking down on us. They don't take us seriously. Uh, and that really, I think, played into um, into some of the grievances that the Leave voters had.
0: So make Britain great again by that's leaving right. the European Union. That's end. right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So.
1: Putting, you know, I remember seeing a poster that was something like putting the grade back in Great Britain. Um, and really? Yeah. Campaign. That's right. Yeah. And then the day after the campaign, you know, I remember some of the, um, some of the newspaper headlines. So I think one of the papers said something like, The Empire Strikes Back. And so the sort of sense of imperial nostalgia, but the sense of we were once a great nation and we're going to make ourselves great again by going it alone and the fact that we can do it alone.
0: Well, that's, that's very interesting because that ties into your, what you said at the beginning, this sort of British identity, that, right. these multiple identities that, right. that, that, that came into play. Okay, so the the referendum happens. Uh, it's a slim majority, with fifty two percent to forty eight percent, a vote to leave. But now that is on the table. Uh, prime Minister Cameron resigns, right. and Theresa May is made prime minister, right. and it's now in her hands to negotiate with the European Union to, right. to bring about Brexit, to That's bring right. about the division. Yeah. Right. So, tell us a little bit about about that. There is this Article Fifty process.
1: Yeah, so, so Article cool. 50 is sort of the the official sort of constitutional thing that you need to do to let the European Union know that you are leaving. So once you kind of trigger Article 50, that starts the process of officially leaving the European Union and the clock kind of starts. So then once you start that process, you have to leave within two years. And Theresa May triggers this in the spring of 19, uh, spring of 2017, and she realizes that the Conservative Party really has to deliver on this, that we've uh, made this commitment and we really have to kind of deliver on it. And so 2017, she starts this process. I think what's really interesting about that moment is in spring 2017, there still isn't a very clear sense of how um, we're going to leave. What will this kind of future relationship look like? And I think once the referendum had happened in 2016, there was still a lot of kind of unclarity about what would be the future relationship, right? Because there are many ways to leave. You could leave, um, you could be a kind of Norway in the situation, right? Where you're still kind of very close, you're not in the union, but you're still kind of closely, your markets are closely integrated. Um, you could be, you know, there. you could have a sort of relationship like Iceland or something. So there are many ways to leave. And I think for Theresa May in 2017, Um, triggering article 50 there was still um, and i don't know if she herself was very sure yet about what the future relationship would be and yet the process had started and the kind of clock was ticking down and then she had to try and negotiate um, both with europe but also with her own party and with kind of the domestic situation to try and figure out what it is that we want and how do we want to leave what is going to be the shape of our future relationship and She does call a snap election, though, right? That's right. Yeah. And and that doesn't work out so well for her. It doesn't work out well for her. That's right. Yeah. So uh, at that point, um, the conservatives have a thin majority, and um, the opposition, the Labor Party, is very weak at this point because they're also kind of split on this question of Brexit, and she decides that... Um, by calling the snap election in in June of 2017, that's going to give her the sort of big majority that she needs um, to pass basically whatever it is that that the Conservative Party wants to pass. And it'll be a kind of quick election and that'll just kind of resolve um, the issue. And of course, that turns out really kind of disastrously for her. Um, The Conservatives lose their majority. Um, They still stay in power because the Labour don't win enough to kind of form um, a government. So Theresa May still um stays in power uh in a really kind of weakened position she has to align with the dup the kind of unionist party in northern ireland to um to kind of hold on to hold on to power um labor the
0: the unionist party in northern ireland is the predominantly protestant that's right party in northern ireland that were were that back in the the days of the troubles and in ireland uh, they were on this, the, the fighting against the Republicans, That's right. uh, the the uh, Sinn Fein, right. uh, the, the, the the main Catholic party. That's right. There, so there's there's that history that is very very important here. That's right. right. So she's dependent upon the Protestants in Northern Ireland right. who want to remain part of Britain, right. while there's a big faction in Northern Ireland that really wants to. To unify with the
1: Irish Republic, right? That's right. Yeah. So you have Irish Republicans who who do not support um, kind of British rule in the island of Ireland. Um, they're opposed to um, they're opposed to British rule. Um, they has this long history of kind of conflict with the British state, um, and um, and they sort of want to take any opportunity they have to um, to to unify with the Republic.
0: Right. and... And those people had also voted to remain in the European Union. That's right.
1: right. Yeah, that's right. And I and, think that's a really kind of interesting question in terms of how the various parts of the UK voted, right? So you saw a big majority, not a big majority, but a kind of uh, a majority for um, leaving the EU in uh, in England. And in Wales, but in Scotland and Northern Ireland, that was not the case. So, in Northern Ireland, people voted in a majority to to stay. Scotland, of course, voted in, in a much larger majority to to stay in uh, in Europe.
0: But the minority in Northern Ireland who voted to stay right.
1: to to
0: leave the union were the Protestants and the Unionist Party. That's right. Who now are supporting? Theresa May's government that's right yeah who, who she needs in order to remain in power that's right and so. And she has to negotiate right. some kind of
1: agreement with the European Union that's right yeah so uh so we, she's in this really precarious position right where you she's have to feel sorry for her. <laughs> right right even yeah even
0: even then we should have understood <laughs> right. that she's in a really tough position
1: yeah she's really trying to negotiate with you know um so both with the DUP to hold on to her government. She's negotiating with people in her own party. So Euroskeptics in her own party. There's something called the ERG, which is this um, Euroskeptic bloc within the par- within the Conservative Party in Parliament, people who have sort of a lot of skepticism about the EU, and they don't want any kind of uh, watering down of the Leave process. They want it to be a kind of hard uh, split with Europe, so she's trying to hold on to that. At the same time, she needs votes from, from Labour and other parties to kind of pass her deal. Um, and they don't want a kind of hard Brexit. And so she's really trying to appeal to a lot of different constituencies who all want really different things. And, um, and I think that makes her position kind of increasingly untenable as 2017 um, goes on and then 2018.
0: Yeah. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the, what hard Brexit means versus right. soft Brexit. Right. What are the real economic realities facing yeah. Britain now? To break off from the European Union after these many decades of right. being part of this That's right. community.
1: Yeah, so I think the kind of interesting thing about the whole process is that there are so many different ways to leave. Right, that you there's no set process on how you or what the relationship would be. And in the referendum, people didn't really weigh in on what they wanted the future relationship to be. It was a question of do you want to stay or leave, without those terms being being defined. And so. There's people on the um, on the leave side who support, there's some people at least who support a very hard Brexit, which means we're going to leave um, entirely, we're not going to be in the European um, common market, we're not going to be in the customs union, so the customs union is the sort of common customs area where goods can kind of flow within the European Union without sort of customs duties or, and sort of have harmonized um, trade and, and customs arrangements, and then... With that comes the kind of freedom of movement piece. So um, if you are um, a citizen of a country in the European Union, you can basically move um, without any um, kind of visa difficulties. You can work in another um, another European country. Uh, you can study in another European country, which a lot of people both in Britain but also elsewhere kind of take advantage of.
0: And that, that was one of the issues in the referendum, right? Right. A lot right.
1: of... British people were
0: upset that so many Europeans were coming and working in Britain. That's right. Particularly Uh,
1: once you see countries within um, kind of Eastern Europe start to join the European Union, there is a kind of sense that our national sort of um, uh, character is changing in some ways, right? These sort of very, in some cases, really ugly um, sort of uh, backlash to um, Eastern European migration. Which um, was was
0: virtually seamless in the European Union, right? That's right. If you're a Uh, a 20-year-old in Poland and don't see very good job prospects, Uh, they could just uh, take a train and go to London and get a job, uh, maybe working in a restaurant or something. That's right. right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you see, I I mean, I think the economy in some places. Lon- the London economy in-, in particular, I think is really kind of dependent on um, European uh, European immigrants. And I think uh, increasingly, as you saw, people in other parts of Britain sort of um, say, well, you know maybe we don't want that and maybe we don't uh, we don't want to sort of um, have a situation where we can control. Um, our own immigration laws. And so so there were those folks who said, well, we want this hard Brexit, where well, we don't want freedom of movement, we don't want to stay in the single market, we don't want to stay in the customs union. And there were other folks who said, who still supported leave, but said, perhaps it needs to be a kind of softer Brexit, where we stay, perhaps, in the single market, we stay in the customs union, but we sort of um, disentangle ourselves politically, um, in a sense a kind of the Norway model, right, where Norway's still within um um, this, the the customs union. There's still freedom of movement, um, but Norway still has its own foreign policy. That's right, its own
0: and its own monetary policy. That's right, and absolutely. Its own, yeah.
1: yeah, and they can they have the power to. So, if there are new European laws or um, regulations, their parliament can sort of vote on them and kind of you know agree to accept them or not accept them. Um, and so they have, in a sense, more uh, more control over the um, over laws.
0: So that was, that was uh, one option. Okay, so these negotiations go on with Europe, yeah. uh, but what were some of the issues that that made it
1: extremely difficult yeah. to come to agreement? Yeah, I think you beyond know, what we've already talked about, right? So, um, in some ways, I would think that probably the sticking point, the issue that really uh, made it very difficult for Theresa May to pass her deal, was the Irish border. Right? What is going to happen? to the Irish border so because Northern Ireland is part of Britain um, Britain has a land border with the EU right which is something we don't all, often think about and I think people in Britain often may sometimes see themselves as were the island nation um, not part of kind of, ma- uh, kind of continental Europe but because Ireland is in the European Union Britain shares a land border with with the European Union and so what would happen to that border is something that became a really, a really kind of sticking point um, in these negotiations. So uh, Theresa May's deal came up with something that was called the backstop. And the backstop really was a way for, um, for Theresa May to avoid uh, putting up a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to sort of avoid going back to the kind of conflict of the 20th century in terms of um, the, the Irish conflict.
0: Right, so that if there were a hard border between uh, in Ireland again, uh, that might reignite the, uh, the, the troubles, the, That's right. the very serious political conflict uh, and violence right. that plagued uh, Ireland from the 1970s until right. just the late 1990s, That's right? right. That, that was resolved uh, only 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago. Right. Uh, and so there was a concern that would just break out again. That's if right. in fact there had there was a hard border there
1: that's right there's even a sense i think people argued uh, that having a hard border would really be a violation of the good friday agreement right so the good friday agreement is the the agreement that ends the northern irish conflict and if you put up a hard border that really kind of violates certain terms of that agreement and so do we really want to open up that agreement again for for negotiation right and so it, Particularly in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, where a lot of people sort of work across the border, have family, Um, you could drive back and forth. There's people maybe who go to work in the Republic and come back home to Northern Ireland without in a kind of any in a very seamless way uh, presently. And so putting up. I've read that that is even true of uh, Irish Protestants, right? right? That's right.
0: That, that uh, though we've had this great history of Catholic-Protestant conflict in Northern Ireland, uh, that over the years with this soft border, right, a lot of port- Protestants as well saw yeah. its economic advantages in dealing with the Republic, which is of course right there, very close. That's right, uh, and itself uh, uh, has been. Though the, the the Irish economy's had its ups and downs. Right, it's been a pretty vibrant over the long haul uh, economy that benefits the Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Irish as well. Right? That's right. That's exactly right.
1: And I think the you know there's communities where the border sort of goes right through the community where it would be sort of you know one side of a village. It's maybe going through the, the border kind of going through the middle. So if you put up a hard border, that really kind of would cause a lot of um, not just kind of economic upheaval, but really a kind of social um, upheaval to, in that already very sort of sensitive situation.
0: So May comes up with this backstop idea. That's so you right. want to go into that a little more to yeah. again, exactly what was the backstop? Right.
1: So basically, um, if Britain is going to leave the customs union, they're going to need a way to, um, to set up a customs border, right? They're going to need a way to, uh, check with, where the goods are going, where they're coming from. And so that would require the hard border. And so May's, um, uh, sort of solution to that is to come up with something called a backstop, which is if we cannot, it's really a kind of in case of emergency sort of solution, which is to say if we can't come up with another way to resolve um, the border without putting up a hard border. So for example, people say well, there might be technological solutions that you could do. Maybe um, sort of cars and trucks don't need to stop at the border. Maybe we'll have some kind of high-tech ways to kind of figure out what's, where something is going. or um, And If we can't figure out any of those solutions, then the kind of present customs arrangements will stay. That's sort of the backstop, which that'll kick in um, and will the current sort of customs regime will stay in place. And for the kind of hard Brexiteers, it's really um, this would be like staying in the EU through the back door. Right. That this would be a way for us to. to kind of be forced to stay in Europe against our will, and we would be kind of dragged back in um, without wanting to, and that they're sort of worried that the backstop will will force them to um, to to stay in, essentially.
0: Right, and also doesn't that create then a hard border between Ireland? That's right. And the rest of United Kingdom. Right? That's right. So now it's across the the water there. That's right. So that's where the border is. That's right. So yeah. are
1: we going to have a A border down the Irish Sea, right? That's the dilemma that they're faced with. Um, And it really, I think in some ways, it's sort of a circle that they have to square of how are we going to, if we want to leave the customs union, we want to leave the single market, but we don't want, and we we have this land border, um, like what is the solution that gets us to all of those things. And so, um, to re- and in some ways, the backstop is sort of like punting the question down to the future to say, well, in a year or two years, if we haven't figured something out, we'll revert back to to these arrangements. Uh, but that that solution isn't acceptable to people in Theresa May's party, um, who sort of vote against her deal uh, multiple times for that reason. Right.
0: And at the same time, there are still Remainers, right, yes, in Britain. Right. The, the, right. the referendum has yeah. happened, but right. but almost half of the British public That's voted right. to Remain in the European Union, yeah. and particularly younger people right? and people in areas like London, That's which you right. said is so cosmopolitan yeah. and, and has people from all over. And for so many years, uh, British people had been used to traveling easily into Europe, right, right, uh, right. buying property. That's right. I know uh, when I've traveled in Spain, mm. you always you always encounter British retirees in the That's south right. of Spain. Right, right. You've bought a house, and That's right. it's like moving to Florida in the right. United States. That's right. uh, and yeah. all that is sort of blown up by this. That's uh, right. yeah. so, so that in itself is creating problems, right? How do you negotiate a deal yeah. to accommodate? And as you say, Britain is now sort of dependent upon right. the labor that comes Right. from other parts of Europe.
1: That's right. So
0: how do you negotiate a deal yeah. to placate the
1: remainers or right. deal with those kinds of ties? That's right. You know, I think that's such a good point. Um, I think we tend to forget how close, um, because of our technology, because of, um, you know, improvements in transportation technology, how closely aligned Um, Britain has become to Europe if you think of something like the Eurostar for example, right? You can take a train in London and you can be in Paris in like three hours, right? You can take a train I think now they're starting that the Eurostar service to Amsterdam like that sort of thing is like unheard of right? The fact that you can get on a train in London and go to Europe Um, and many people do that, right? It's like let's go to uh, if you know, let's go to Paris for for the weekend Have you? Yeah, pretty amazing. Right. Yeah, it's a great experience.
0: You're suddenly in Britain and then you look out the window and, oh, those are French cows. That's right. That's
1: right. Yeah. Right. And so how do you kind of disentangle this like 30, 40 year, uh, year history of integration right you really need to kind of there are laws that have to be rewritten there you know you really need to even things like um laws on uh, regulation on food or um air transportation right like um interpol the kind of inter uh, international police uh, cooperation between britain and europe security arrangements uh, biotech right all sorts of areas of british life and economy have become so um closely integrated with europe and you really need to kind of disentangle um, all of those things while um, kind of uh, placating remainers who, who want who still want um, closer ties and and brexiteers who sort of want to cut these ties so it really is a kind of difficult um, situation. Yeah,
0: and supply chains and, right. and for businesses like their factories right. in, in England That's that right. depend upon parts coming from Europe or right. they make parts
1: in Britain that right. Are used in manufacturing things in Europe and medicine, right? Like there's just all these areas of British life and economy that are so closely tied. And
0: finance is a big problem, right? right? Because London is the big European financial center. But some people say, with Brexit, it's not going to be anymore. That's right. So if
1: you're, you know, let's say you're an American company, you're an Asian company, um, you want access to the European market. Uh, maybe you want to be based in London because it's still familiar the language is familiar um, and you still get access to the European market Uh, but if that's no longer the case maybe that um, that changes your calculus a little bit right so I know there's in some cases people have said well maybe they'll relocate to Dublin now because they still want to be part of a kind of English-speaking place uh, and still have access to to the European market and so um, I think it would have an impact on London's position as this kind of uh, center of global finance and capital.
0: So this is mind-boggling, right? That's right, Professor Siddiqui, It's like, yeah. and Theresa May is there having to negotiate, right, uh, with this, with a, with a very small, with, with not even a majority in Parliament, right. yeah, dependent upon this northern. Uh, Irish party, right? Uh, and uh, and it really doesn't work out too well with her, right? And pretty soon she has to resign. That's right. And that brings us to Boris Johnson. That's right. Yes. So so tell us about Boris Johnson and yeah, what, where has he been uh, on all of this? Uh, who is he? Yeah. Uh, what and how does he? end up as Prime Minister.
1: Yeah, so he's this sort of very popular, kind of larger-than-life figure on the Conservative side for many years. So he was the Mayor of London um, early in the 2000s. And I think, in a sense, to win in London, you sort of need to appeal to um, to many different, uh, not just the kind of Conservatives, but also you need to appeal to kind of uh, Liberal voters, to Labour voters. And so when he was Mayor of London, he had this kind of, he was seen as this sort of very mainstream um popular conservative um who could this sort of big tent conservatism right that we're going to we can bring in uh um new voters we're going to be the pro-business party but also the party of sort of uh social justice and we're we're going to be the party that that can bring in all of these um uh new voters um he's also kind of uh in some ways a sort of flamboyant figure um cuts a sort of very populist um, uh, figure in European media, uh, British media. He wrote a very popular column um, in The Telegraph, I believe, uh, or maybe a different paper. And so he's a kind of presence on um, the British political scene for many years. Um, in So in 2016, after the referendum, when Theresa May comes into power, um, I think he sort of senses an opportunity for him, uh, for him to to be prime minister, essentially, because she still has a kind of weak, uh, weak coalition, and she really isn't able to kind of bring together these kind of uh, fractured parts of the Conservative Party, um, and so. He
0: had been kind of ambivalent about the Leave
1: Remain debate, right? That's right. During yeah. the
0: referendum, he. At first, supported Remain, and then right. he switched positions and became a lever. Right? That's
1: right. Yeah. So because I think you know he was he was a mayor of London, I think he had to at that point during the campaign he wasn't, but before because he had this um, history of of being of ki- kind of getting his political support from London, I think he had to um, at least be kind of open to. Um, the Remain position. Um, he debated um, for the leaf side during the campaign, but there's a very famous, I don't know how true this is, but there's a sort of famous mythical story that right before um, the referendum, he wrote two co- the two articles, one kind of arguing for the remain side and one arguing for the for the leave side and the, that he was going to release whichever one sort of one, whichever position one in the referendum, who's going to release like that version of the article. Um, and so very much somebody who could, I think, maybe speak to both sides, but also was willing to um, was willing to capitalize on the opportunities that that the referendum presented. Um, And so um, he also has a lot of, because of his sort of um, uh, popularity on the right, I think he had a lot of support among leavers and among the kind of hard uh, Brexiteer supporters. And so um, he was against Theresa May's deal. And so I think, in a sense, he could see the kind of end coming of her government, and he could tell that if this deal is not going to be pa- it's not going to be passed, uh, if it fails multiple times, there which there, it did, which, which fails three times, and there's a an leadership campaign, and he sort of brings himself up as the person who can kind of bring the Conservative Party back together.
0: Right. So- there were three attempts to to approve the deal that Theresa right. May had negotiated with the Europeans. Right. Fails three times. Fails three times. And right. then she resigns. Then she resigns, And yeah. And so the way British politics works is that the the party then right. picks the next party leader who becomes prime minister. That's right. right? The Americans, some have a
1: difficult time understanding that. Right. That you can get a new prime minister without an election. That's right. It's a parliamentary system. So you could have a new government without an election, right, which is a kind of uh, incredible thing. Um, and so, uh, and and the, the kind of irony of it is, I think if Johnson had supported Theresa May's deal, probably he could have convinced enough people um, on the conservative side to come on board and and maybe pass the deal. Um, and and but because he didn't, and you know, and the deal wasn't wasn't able to be passed.
0: Okay. So, but now he's prime minister. Now he's
1: prime minister. But now he has this
0: problem, right? Right. How to deal with again the. Unionists in his party on whom he is dependent Just like May was for his government right uh, to negotiate all these tangled things, right? So how does he deal
1: with this situation? So he basically comes into office on the promise that we're going to get the Europeans back to the table and they're going to Renegotiate the agreement that they've made with Theresa May and Europe has been sort of very adamant all along that This is the final version like there's not going to be any changes Um, but Johnson sort of manages to make sort of some changes to that deal. And crucially, I think he manages to take the backstop out of it essentially. And I think because that had been the kind of main sticking point for a lot of um, uh, sort of hard brexit supporters, he manages to 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 get that taken out of the deal. And he brings his deal back to Parliament. Um, it still isn't enough to um, to to pass because um, the DUP is not totally, Uh, in favor of the new agreement labor certainly not going to support the new agreement and conservatives don't have enough even if everybody votes for johnson's deal which is not the case because they're conservative mps who who are in london or more leave supporting areas uh, remain supporting areas and so he still doesn't have enough support um, to get his kind of new de- the sort of changes to the deal that he's made passed, and so he says we're gonna we're gonna need to call an election to sort this out. Parliament has sort of failed; we failed to resolve this politically, and so we're throwing this back to the people. Give me a majority, and I will get Brexit done. Right, that's his sort of uh, slogan: is we're gonna get Brexit done if you give me a majority. Um, Labour sort of resists the election for for a while because they yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about Labour's position.
0: Uh, headed yeah. the Labour Party, headed now by Jeremy Corbyn, right. who's a sort of uh, a left-wing yes. leader of the Labour Party. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about their position all
1: along and all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, so I think Labour, um, Labour's position on Brexit in a sense has been very difficult to resolve as well. So Corbyn comes into becomes a leader after Ed Miliband loses the election um, in in 2015. Um, Corbyn, as you said, is very much on the on the left. There is a sense
0: we know the left historically had some problems with the. That's right. right?
1: That's right. So he's part of that. He's part of that tradition. That tradition, right? Yeah. So he's very much someone who is skeptical about the European project, um, and yet he still has to take a kind of remain position. Um, because a lot of the the labor base, particularly in London, young people in particular, right? So people under 25 who are voted to stay in huge numbers, um, he needs to kind of hold on to those uh, parts of the base. So he has to present at least a kind of outward facing uh, remain um, support. Um, and yet at the same time, there's these labor constituencies in the north in these kind of older industrial towns that have voted uh, to leave. And so how are you, how is Labour going to hold on to them while still hold on, holding on to its base in London, among university towns, um, among young people? And so he has this challenge as well in some ways of how do you hold together the coalition? So He votes against, the Labour votes against Theresa May's deal um, all the times that it comes up for for a vote. Um, But going into the election, he again has to kind of square the circle of um, he doesn't want to be seen as supporting um, Boris Johnson's deal. Um, He doesn't want to be seen as being um, kind of 100% pro-Remain because that will um, uh, make him lose support in the North. So his solution to that is to say, we're going to offer you a second referendum. The labor's position will be...
0: We're talking now about the December 12th election. That's right. right. So The election right. that Johnson says he, we need to have because right. he couldn't get the votes for any of these deals. That's and, right. And, uh, and so there is a, an election set up for December 12th. That's right, yes. And, and, and so labor's position is, you know, vote for us and we'll get a... We'll have a second referendum,
1: right? We're going to offer you a second referendum. So if you're if you're supporting Remain, you still don't worry. You'll get your say again. You can kind of vote to stay in the in the union. Um, if you are a Leave supporter, you can still vote for us because we'll give you an opportunity to have a say again. And really, I think he sees this as as a kind of um, a way for to kind of triangulate between these two. Uh, very, very kind of positions that are pulled apart. Um, what's so interesting is during that campaign, the, the December 2019 election. Um, Corbyn himself is very ambivalent. So he's asked, for example, during the campaign, "Well, how would you vote if you, if that, if you were to get into power and you get your referendum that you've promised? How would you vote in the referendum?" And he kind of refuses to answer. Basically, he says, "Well, I want to be the prime minister for everyone. Um, I don't want to say how I would vote. I would, but I would implement whatever result the people vote for." And I think he maybe sees that as an opportunity to kind of appeal both. Not to kind of, I guess, not to alienate either side, but really it ends up being a situation where I think voters think, well, we don't really know uh, what side you're supporting, what side you're really for. And of course, one thing we haven't talked about up to
0: now, and maybe we should have brought this up earlier, was austerity. Yes. Uh, that right. after the 2008 financial crisis, right. the conservative government That's right. had adopted this policy of pretty severe yeah. cutbacks in social right. services. right. Uh, as a way of supposedly uh, reviving the economy, some sort of uh, opposite from Keynesian, Keynesianism, -Keynesianism anti-Keynesianism is what they pursued, right? Right. Right. And labor had very much opposed all of that. And all along, Corbyn's uh, main concern was reversing that austerity, right? That's right. And that plays into this campaign even in December 12th of of 2019 that's right right.
1: yeah I think that's a really good good observation I think um, for Corbyn it's very much in a sense he's sort of less interested in the Brexit issue, he really just wants to move past that and make the election about economic issues, right? That this is our chance to reverse 10 years of austerity, this is our chance to kind of rebuild um, the working class. Um, The the manifesto is sort of, um, uh, the big items in his campaign are um, kind of nationalizing the railways, sort of getting rid of university tuition, um, putting more money into the National Health Service, so he really wants to run as um, in a kind of on an economic um, message. Familiar. It
0: sounds like a British version of Medicare right. for all. That's right. Free yeah. tuition for college. Right. Okay. Right. I, I, That's right. Resonating here.
1: Yeah, I, I think there are even in terms of personnel. I think there are connections. Right. There's people who kind of work, um, who worked on the Corbyn campaign, who are volunteers um, in in you know for the Sanders campaign in the primary. So really, there is a kind of shared. Um, uh, transatlantic uh, uh, coalition. I think on on the. I low. know
0: there are pro-Sanders podcasts who, right, who spend a lot of time also praising Jeremy Corbyn, right, uh, and right. we're very hopeful
1: before December twelfth that maybe Labour would That's pull right. off a victory there, right. And I think because you know we were as we were talking about with the 2017 election, even though Labour did not win, they managed to increase their seats. They managed to take away the conservative majority, it really is seen as like one more push and then we will be um, we will be um, in, in, in office.
0: And that was the first election with Jeremy Corbyn as leader, right? right? So a lot of people said Jeremy Corbyn's too far to the left. Right. He's going to be a disaster for labor. And in 2017,
1: right. it was the opposite. That's right. And so usually if you lose an election, you kind of basically, the convention is that you step down from the party and you let somebody else, um, uh, have a kind of leadership campaign, but because that election was a weird result where they lost, but they didn't quite, um, they they didn't really kind of get decimated as people were expecting. They still gained seats. Um, there was the sense that he can still, you know, there was a kind of renewed. I think among the the, the left, there was a kind of renewed confidence in his uh, in his ability to to win.
0: So December
1: twelfth election comes. Yes. So tell right. us about that. Yeah, that you know it's so. Um, it was a kind of really interesting election. The December elections in general are sort of rare, I think, because um, parties are reluctant to hold them. They think, you know, people are kind of maybe preoccupied with Christmas, uh, school holidays. It's going to depress turnout and for, for Johnson, this is an opportunity to get the majority that he wants to get his deal passed. For Corbyn, he thinks this is an opportunity for us to really um, you know, build on the victories that we had in in the gains that we had in 2017. And of course, it turns out that the conservatives end up with a massive majority, right? Labor loses a bunch of seats. Boris Johnson gets the, the results that he wants. Um, what's interesting about the campaign is the poll results right before the election were sort of putting Labor more or less in the same place that they were right before the 2017 um, election. And so I think people there were people on the Labor side um, who really thought this is going to be a kind of repeat of um, 2017, where we were down like five six points, but we still managed to make gains um, in the election, and and yet when the election comes, uh, the results come about, uh, Labor sort of um, loses in a really big way.
0: And you lost a lot of those seats in the north That's of right. traditional Labor voters,
1: right? Who now are voting conservative because they're in favor of. Of brexit that's right what was sort of called Labour's red wall right Labour's red wall in the north the seats that um have never voted conservative for 80 years for 100 years have voted for the labor party um that that is what's going to protect um that's what's going to protect labor um ended up not being the case and uh, they lost these very crucial seats uh in in the north
0: so so Johnson wins a big victory. Yes.
1: He now has a solid
0: conservative majority right. and in a parliamentary system that means his policy is in fact going to uh, going to be enacted. Right. And he said he's going to get Brexit done and he's done it, right? He's done it. That's Britain great. Brexit occurred officially. Uh, The end of January, January thirty first. That's right,
1: eleven p.m. British time, January thirty first, twenty twenty. Britain officially so it's all done. settled. that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) right. You know, I think not, but not. That's right. In in a way, I think the real hard questions are now sort of starting. So they've left the European Union, but they're in this transitional phase now, at least for a year, where they're no longer part of the European Union, but nothing will change in terms of um, the kind of laws and regulations and participation in the market, uh, at least for, for the year, so they can sort of figure out um, what it is that they want.
0: So now they're back to where they were when Theresa May first became prime minister, <laughs> untangling right. this right. mess, that's this right. relationship. Right. Uh, even though Brexit is done, they're officially out. Right. All
1: those issues are still there, right? That's right. The real, and yeah, absolutely. The real hard questions, in a in a way, are still there. Um, now they have to kind of come up with a, a a trade deal, what the the future relationship will be, and those are going to be the real, I think, in some ways, um, difficult issues to work out. In a, in a way, leaving was the was the easy part. I think figuring out what the future will be, what our future relationship will be, is going to be the hard part.
0: Yeah. And what about that Irish border? What's the situation there? Is that? The, that's going to have to be negotiated now.
1: Yeah, so it's going. So Johnson's deal, in a sense, basically sort of um, uh, took the backstop out and said we're going to do. We're going to kind of keep a customs um, border, but not at the Irish border. So in a sense, the customs border is going to be elsewhere, right? Perhaps down the Irish Sea. Uh, maybe we'll have to do customs checks like um, not at the border, but before the border. Maybe at the point of origin or something. So they've tried to come up with kind of creative ways to 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 solve that issue i even i was reading reading recently that they've proposed building a bridge between northern ireland and britain across the irish sea which would be a kind of i think probably nothing short of an engineering miracle to sort of be able to do that. So they have to sort of figure out what's going to happen there. Um, They have to figure out what the economic relationship will be. Um, So all these sorts of issues, I think, um, they're just, I believe, I think just this week they're starting the kind of trade negotiations. And um, the very first deadline, I think, is something like in June, they have to figure out just the fisheries policy. Like, what is that going to be? And so I think they're going to sort of do this in pieces and um, and really, sort of try to figure out what the relationship will be,
0: and that includes the whole host of issues, right? Like, right.
1: what's going to be the status of Europeans working
0: in Britain? That's right, people. Uh, absolutely. Uh, whether what's the what's the status of British property property owners right. in Europe? And, right, uh, and that's right.
1: Yeah, and what's going to happen to the supply chains? Right, exactly. All of these sorts of issues, right? People, students, British students studying in Europe, European students in Britain, people who work in Europe, Britons who work in Europe. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, all sorts, a whole host of issues that have to be um, that have to be worked out. And you know, a year does nearly doesn't seem enough time to sort of figure that figure all of this out. And yet, the transition period ends uh, after a year, and so I think in a year they'll have to figure out, okay, do we apply for uh, an extension to the transition period? Do we leave now? Um, So I think in a sense, the kind of debate about Staying or leaving, in a sense, will I think will probably be revived again by the end of the year when they are faced with um, the transition period ending.
0: And, and the issue of whether it's going to be a hard, hard
1: Brexit or right. a softer one is still there. That's right; it's still there to be figured out. Right? None of those issues have been have been resolved, and so in a, in a way, I think the the Brexit question has not yet been uh, been resolved in british politics right i think after the johnson um election there was a sense of like finally we can kind of put this to rest there's a there's a majority for a deal and we can kind of pass this and, and and move forward but as you said i think those issues um are still very much there and and have to be resolved um the other thing i'll say very quickly is the coalition that johnson has put together in winning the campaign in winning the election is very different than the usual conservative coalition, right? So he has all these new MPs um, from the North, that w- that wasn't the case before. Um, he has MPs who won on very thin margins uh, in seats that used to be labor seats. And so those MPs are not going to want to go along with everything that Johnson wants to do or everything perhaps a hard Brexit agenda wants to do. And so I think Um, for Johnson as well trying to hold his, um, his party together although he's now in a very strong position but I think that we may yet see kind of fractures within his coalition
0: He already has modified the story austerity agenda, right? He's already said we're going to start spending again.
1: Absolutely, yeah. He, you know, he now has all of these new seats in the north. People who are expecting public investment. People who expect um, who were labor voters who who expected the government to sort of invest more in their communities. Um, And and I think and Johnson kind of realizes that he can't just run on a kind of austerity agenda anymore. I think he really will have to run. Um, uh, a, a, more, a less traditional uh, conservative, uh, conservative government.
0: And, and there's irony there because it was the euroskeptics right. in the Conservative Party right. who were the most strongly in favor of austerity. That's also, right. right? That's right. Yeah. They're kind of. They, uh, my impression is they're kind of libertarian in their outlook. Right. That's right. Yeah. And so, so they, they wanted to leave Europe. So they talked about making Britain the Singapore.
1: That's right. Of of Europe, right? Right, right. Right. This
0: libertarian kind of bastion. That's right, yeah. But but now... they have a coalition that that's isn't right. going to allow that. Right. right? That's right. They, Johnson they, cannot survive if he pursues right. those kind
1: of policies. Yeah. You, that's right. It's exactly right. You know, I remember reading something where someone said the kind of conservative vision was to create in London to create sort of Dubai on the Thames, right? That you have this kind of city that's very much tied to global capital, global markets, but without the sort of investments in social welfare or the welfare state. Um, and I think Johnson really has to kind of rethink that now, right? He has he needs the support in the North. Um, in some ways, the support from the North is, is still very soft for him. They're not people who traditionally vote conservative, and so they're not going to uh, continue to vote conservative um, if, they, if they're not happy with what, what the government has done. They're not traditional voters, conservative voters.
0: And, and it strikes me, you know, from our conversation, I hadn't thought of this before, but just this, this idea just came into my mind, that if Johnson succeeds in negotiating uh, some arrangement to truly get Brexit done, right. uh, he's really maybe offered a gift to the Labor Party. Right. That is, right. uh, Jeremy Corbyn no. wanted to move past Brexit, right, yeah. so that right. politics could focus on domestic right. economic issues. Right. And on those issues, from what you just said, yeah. it's Johnson who's in kind of a bind here. He's, right. he's, he's got these voters up there, yeah. but they're easily convertible back to labor voters right. if, in fact... The conservative, if the Conservative Party can't somehow placate their desires for a more moderate or left-wing kind of
1: economic policy, that's right. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. In many ways, if Johnson succeeds with getting Brexit done and getting that sort of resolved, maybe it'll become less of a less of an issue for future um, future campaigns, and Labour can sort of go back to. Um, the kind of economic message that they want to run on uh, and really kind of run on the, on the message that they want. Um, the other thing, of course, is if, as some economists have said, Brexit leads to um, sort of more economic um, challenges for Britain, um, then that's the record in a sense that Johnson will have to run on as well, right? And so um, if there's further kind of economic challenges that, that come about because of Brexit, uh, labor can, in a sense, um, dissociate themselves from that, and they'll be able to. Uh, it's
0: the party in p- power that suffers. Right, and the economy suffers. That's right. And, yeah. and most economists predict that whatever they negotiate with Europe, it isn't going to be good for the British economy. Right. Uh, I mean, th- mm-hmm. those predictions could be wrong, but it, it looks like that Britain might be facing some hard economic times. That's right. Because of this divorce that uh, is undoing, you know, three decades of right. Of a
1: relationship, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Europe is big, Britain's biggest market, um, and to kind of disentangle that, to leave that, um, British businesses, I think will be will be hurt by it. Investment in Britain may be uh, decreasing, and so I think there'll be there'll be huge challenges for for British businesses and the British economy once Brexit uh, kind of fully goes through.
0: Okay, well, this has been a wonderful conversation. to To end up, you're a historian, so. Yeah. I guess I'm going to ask you sort of the broad perspective history question. You're a historian of the British Empire. Right. Uh, you you look at Britain over a long period of time. Yeah. So as a historian looking at this, how do you place this sort of in the in in the in the
1: long sweep of British history? Where right. where does this uh, settle? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. In some ways, I think um, this is certainly I think the most significant reorientation of Britain's position in the world at least since the end of the World War, World War Two, right? Where Britain has kind of decided to take a path substantially different than what it was doing for the last, um, you know, half half a century. And so it's a... And
0: at the end of World War Two it was basically giving up on the empire.
1: Right? That's right. That's right. So um, after World War Two, when the kind of decolonization happened, Britain left in India in the late 1940s and then uh, its empire in kind of Uh, Africa and the Caribbean colonies in the kind of early by the early 60s had had left its empire. And that was a kind of very significant change in Britain's position in the world. And I think this is the kind of second big shift in Britain's position in the world that's happened. So I think I do see it in those sorts of um, kind of it's a kind of world historical change for for how Britain sees itself and and what Britain's place in the world is going to be. What's really interesting, I think, is both The 1975 referendum and the 2016 referendum have been instances where the British people have voted on what our place in the world is going to be, right? So in 1975, they voted to to stay in the European economic community. In, um, in 2016, they voted to leave the union. And so in a sense, when the question of what is our place going to be in the world, when that is put to the British people in 2016, they kind of voted to sort of withdraw from the world, right? That we want not to be integrated with Europe. We want to kind of have, um, we want to take, we want to step, step back from that. Um, and I think that is, uh, that's is—that's a really kind of interesting thing for historians to think about what that means for Britain's role going forward and uh, what that means for British society. I think that's a really significant thing. And time will tell. Time will tell, yes. <laughs> it's a, it's a, and not a cliche. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, well, Professor uh, Osama Siddiqui, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot about what was going on with Brexit, and I'm sure our listeners have too.
1: Thank you. It's a great, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, and it was a really fun conversation. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you to Professor Osama Siddiqui of the Department of History and Classics for being our guest on Beyond Your Newsfeed today. Thanks also to Beyond the Newsfeed's production assistant, Reagan Wind. Providence College Class of 2020, and we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr, Vice President for Marketing and Communications, and his staff for their support. We ask you to continue to listen to these podcasts of Beyond Your News Feed, and please tell four friends about the podcast and tell them that they can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thanks very much.